join me in your copy of God's Word. I hope you brought it with you today. If not, there should be a Bible under your seat or under a seat in front of you. Open your Bibles again to uh, the letter of James. Uh, James, the author, half-brother of Jesus, leader in the early church in Jerusalem as he's writing to uh, several Christian uh, churches around the Roman Empire. James chapter 3, this morning will be in verses 1 through 12. You've probably heard, maybe even said, the old expression, maybe you can finish it for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Never a more horrible lie has ever been told. It doesn't probably take us very long to think through or think about times in our life where people have said things to us, or maybe we have said things to others that hurt worse cut deeper than sticks or stones or knives could ever do. I think a better expression is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can scar my heart forever. Uh, I think it's a little more true. The power of our words to, to help or to hurt uh, is incredible. And it is to the power of the words and to the nature of our speech that James turns in chapter 3 of his letter In the verses that we'll look at this morning, we'll find James instructing and helping the church to understand that genuine faith in the life of the Christian leads him to treat his speech with great care. In the control of his tongue, the Christian is able to put his faith in Christ to work in the rest of his body, being obedient and disciplined in all of his actions, and to use his speech not for harm or for hurt, but for blessing and for good. This morning, I hope we'll find through the, uh, through the passage that we're looking at of God's word this morning that sincere and authentic faith in Jesus makes us aware, it makes us mindful of how our speech can be used for great blessing or for great harm. And the passage this morning moves us to bring uh, the other disciplines of holiness to bear upon every area of our life so that what we speak is not only Christ-like but everything that we do. So then let us this morning, as we read God's word and apply it to our lives, hope to and and endeavor to renew our commitment as followers of Jesus to be those who use our words, who use our speech, who exercise our tongue to bring blessing and the promise of spiritual life in Christ to others. This morning we will see that faith speaks. Will you stand with me as we honor God by reading from his word, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James, the apostle and elder of the church in Jerusalem, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. 
But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. May God add blessing as we obey his word. You may be seated. Today we see that faith speaks. Faith does a lot of things in the context of James's letter. Today we see how faith speaks. First of all, we see in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2 that faith speaks knowing that God judges our words. Faith in Jesus, genuine faith held by Christians who are trying to follow Christ, speaks. It, 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 faith makes its way out of our life in the words that leave our lips with the knowledge that God will judge our words. And perhaps you read or heard this first verse of James 3 and immediately tuned out because it seems that James is only speaking to teachers in the church, to those who would or to those who would want to be teachers in the church. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, says James, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James is certainly speaking to those who were called and gifted uh, within the body of the church to teach the congregation, to take God's word give themselves to understanding it rightly, and then instructing other believers so that they might understand it and apply it to their lives and live out of the obedience that it brings. James warns those who are and who would be teachers to beware, to be cautious about that role in the church, knowing that God will judge with greater strictness those who do teach in the church. This more strict judgment of God is though not based upon a higher standard of moral conduct that God has for teachers over and above other believers. I have heard, and maybe you have heard, this verse taught uh, as a way of uh, to say that those who teach in the church, those who preach in the church, are supposed to live holier lives than everyone else. Like pastors and teachers are, are held to this standard of holiness. And if you're not a pastor or a teacher in the church, you get to live by this standard of holiness. You laugh, but you've heard that before, haven't you? That is not what God is saying. That's not what James is saying. James is not saying that pastors and teachers have to live to a higher level of holiness than the rest of the church. Surely there is no gradation of holiness within God in his own person. God tells Israel in the Old Testament, uh, which Peter affirms in 1 Peter 1, 5, he says to his people, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And within the Godhead, within the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is not more holy than the Son, nor the Son more holy than the Spirit, nor uh, either way going back around those relationships. Each is infinitely and eternally holy. There is none, no person of the triune God who is more holy than the other. So then there is no person among God's people who is called to a higher level of holiness over and above another, or others who are allowed with allowed to live according to a lesser level of holiness than others. Just as God does not have differing levels of holiness in himself, so also he does not require differing levels of holiness among his people who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. 
Rather, when James says that those who teach will be judged more strictly, he is speaking of of stricter judgment for teachers by uh, uh, drawing upon the teaching of his half-brother, the risen Lord Jesus, who himself said this in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Jesus said in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. James is saying, friends, words matter. The things we say have significance. They're not meaningless. Teachers, by the words that they speak, wield great influence over those that they teach. Students, likewise, are naturally trusting of their instructors. All the more so are growing Christians, Christian students, growing believers in Christ, following Jesus more faithfully. Even more so are they more trusting of their teachers in the Lord, of those who teach them in the church. So James says, teachers will be held to a strict judgment because of what they say, precisely because what they say really matters. It's easy to cause much harm with just a few words of disinformation or misinformation or wrong doctrine as taught. So James says, not many of you should become teachers. And you said in your mind, no problem, brother James, not an issue here, not called to be a teacher, not a problem for me. I'll just, let's just move along to chapter four, shall we? But listen, Christian, all of us All of us, by Christ's own command to us in Matthew 28, 19, all of us are to be disciple makers who teach disciples of Jesus to obey all that Christ has commanded. So you, by nature of your relationship with Christ as Savior and Lord, as a follower of Jesus, having been commanded by Jesus to make disciples by teaching them to obey Jesus, are a teacher. So James 3, 1 is for you. Now you can get nervous. I'm just kidding. So if you're a Christian, you're a disciple maker. And if you're a disciple maker, you are a teacher. And since we know that all of us stumble, as James says, we know that all of us sin. All of us are prone to saying foolish things without thinking. We know that when it comes to speaking about our faith, when it comes to speaking in efforts to lead others to faith and to grow in faith, that we must be careful. We must be cautious. We must be careful to let faith, our faith in Christ, speak in a way that pleases God, that honors him, that glorifies Christ, speak in a way that rightly reflects the God whose name we carry, and to speak in a way that is clear about the gospel that we know and believe. Faith speaks knowing God, knowing that God judges our words. So Christian, you must measure every word of instruction you give to anyone else. In light of the unfailing word of God, knowing that God judges our words uh, uh, strictly, particularly as we speak about Christ and who he is, we must ensure that all of our words are measured against the instruction of God's word. Perhaps you've heard these phrases spoken by Christians about faith and about what it means to have a relationship with God. Words like this, God helps those who help themselves. Perhaps you've heard people say, Christians say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've even heard Christians say, you can do anything you want if you just believe in yourself. Dear friends, may these words, may these phrases never leave our lips as Christians because they are contrary to the word of God. 
God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless and without any hope for reconciliation or restoration to him on their own. The gospel is not that we are saved by grace after all that we can do. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus when there was nothing we could do. The gospel, the Bible does not anywhere say God will never give you more than you can handle. Often, frequently, the Bible says God intentionally gives you more than you can handle so that you must rely upon him to make it through. Certainly nowhere does the Bible say anything like you can do anything if you just believe in yourself. On the contrary, the Bible says things like the heart of man is wicked and deceitful, desperately sick. Who can trust it? The Bible says things like there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. If you believe in yourself, good luck. What you're believing in is a broken heart that has been shattered and rendered inoperable by sin. What you need is not to believe in yourself, but to believe in Christ who has saved you, died and risen from the dead to save you from your sin. So silly adages like these ought never to leave our lips because when measured against the instruction of the Lord, they they fail in every aspect. Likewise, taking verses out of context and applying them to conditions or situations for which they do not apply should not be a pattern among us. We ought to be known as those who seek to understand God's word, not just a verse at a time, but but within the context of the entire book in which they they lie and and in the context of the entire canon of Scripture. Because it is very often that what may seem to, to be saying one thing or may be a verse that we'd like to apply to our lives today may be contradicted by how God uses or works that truth out in the life of his people throughout scripture. It's not uncommon for prosperity gospel preachers today to take the blessings of God to Israel in Deuteronomy, those promises of blessing, if they'll be obedient to God and apply them directly to Americans today on the other side of the gospel without any consideration for the curses that God tells his people of Israel that they'll incur if they're disobedient to him. You see, the blessings, the curses uh, of covenant relationship uh, with God that are relayed in Deuteronomy find themselves played out in appropriate ways all throughout the Old Testament. And while God intends that for his people, Israel, uh, those blessings have been brought to fruition. And all of those curses have been born in the person of Christ on the cross. So we don't take those promises of blessing or or cursing from Deuteronomy and apply them directly to us today because that forgets the whole reason that Christ came to begin with. For truly our blessing is in Christ. Our fulfillment, our spiritual prosperity is fulfilled in Jesus. And he himself took every curse that was due to us for our sin when he died on that tree. Christian, measure every word of instruction you give to another in light of the unfailing word of God because God will judge the words that we speak. Faith speaks, secondly, as James tells us, with control over our words. Here he mentions this in the second half of verse 2 and through the first half of verse 5. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Turning from a warning about how our speech will be judged by God 
James gives the rationale for that warning, the reason that he warns us to be careful about what we speak. Many should be wary of becoming teachers because speech, because the tongue, though seemingly insignificant, has the ability to have massive impact upon those who hear what we have to say. If anyone is able to control his tongue, James says, to master his speech, then he is also able to control every part of his body as well. That is amazing. Believing this, uh, asserting this, James uses two similes, two comparisons to make this point. The first of these comparisons is to bits in the mouths of horses. You see there in verse 3, James compares controlling the tongue to controlling a horse with a bit. Uh, Just as a relatively small piece of metal can be placed in the back of the mouth of a horse, allowing a person to control or to direct that animal. So also, if a man can control only his tongue, he can control the whole body as well. James compares the control of the tongue to rudders on ships. So in the same way, just as a rudder being a relatively, a respectively small piece of wood or metal on a boat on the stern of a ship, that small piece of wood or metal can turn and redirect an entire uh, 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 frigate, right? So also, if a man can control his tongue, he can control his whole life as well. Verse 5 completes the simile, completes the comparisons for us. As James says that though the tongue is a small thing, like a bit in the mouth of a horse, like the rudder on the back end of a ship. Even though the tongue is a small thing, it boasts of great power. It can do much. It can also boast of matters of great pride, undoing a person. Our words are a reflection of what is hidden in the deepest recesses of our hearts. The jokes we tell, the gossip we engage in, the encouragement we give, the insults that we spit, the gushing soliloquies of love that we profess, the shouts of anger that escape our lips all come from what is truly inside of us, from what truly resides in our hearts. And when push comes to shove, we cannot ultimately stop what we most deeply feel, what we most deeply believe from coming out in our words. Good or bad, right or wrong, helpful or harmful. So the man, so the Christian who has control over his words is likewise a man who has great discipline over his life. And the woman who consistently measures her words carefully against the word of God is a woman who has gained great control over her own heart and her own mind. So we see a genuine faith in Jesus that results in a heart that is changed by him speaks with great control, speaks with great uh, uh, Mastery over our words. Faith speaks with control over our words. And because of that, Christians, we must speak slowly, clearly, and truly. Now, by that, I I don't necessarily mean you speak slowly. But that you are, as James says in uh, James chapter 1, that we be slow to speak. That, that we measure our words carefully and think about them before we say them. That we speak clearly, not just that we enunciate, but that we communicate clear words and that we speak truly. One, one, uh, one of the people I admire most in all the world is Pastor Danny, who I am pleased to pastor with. And never have I met a person who, who embodies this application more appropriately of speaking slowly, clearly, and truly. Never does Pastor Danny speak a word that is not worth saying. When I grow up, Danny, I want to be like you. That's assuming I ever grow up. 
Christians must speak slowly, clearly, and truly. Have you ever met a person without a filter who just literally says everything that comes to mind as it comes to mind? It's like they never stop talking because they never stop thinking. There's nothing in the middle to catch the words that they shouldn't say or the thoughts that shouldn't be communicated. The people just talk constantly and, and, and one moment to the next, they'll have completely contradictory things that come out of their mouths because just as they think it, it comes out. That ought not to be so about Christians. We ought to be those who are in control of our speech and, and, and not because control of our speech makes us better people. But we control our speech. We speak slowly, clearly, truly. We measure our words knowing that Christ in us is transforming us to be those who speak words of blessing and life all the time. So we should take time to consider what we're going to say before we say it. A passage, a verse of scripture that's been just incredibly helpful to me over the last month or so in my own walk with Christ and consideration of, of my own just pursuit of personal holiness is this. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10.5, uh, in, in the context of this verse, he's addressing the problem of false teachers in Corinth, who uh, Corinth was, was famous for having uh, many sort of uh, renowned speakers that would travel through it, and people would make a living as itinerant speakers in the city of Corinth. You go stand on a box in the middle of the city and uh, say something profound, and people would give you money for it. In the midst of this kind of culture, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10:5, "We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ." Amen. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Christians who have control over their words are Christians who practice this well, I think, who take every thought captive to obey Jesus. As a thought enters your mind, as, as you're in conversation with someone and you're thinking of a response to what they say, taking every thought captive means as you're considering a response, you, you, before you say anything, you, you take that thought out of your head, if, if that's possible, and you hold it up against the word of Scripture, against God's word to say, number one, is this thing worth saying? <laughs> is my response, is the way that I want to speak to this individual, is it true? Do I know how to say it clearly in a way that they'll understand it and will be a blessing to them? And can I say it in a, in a way that leads them, that points them to Jesus and not just to my own wisdom and ability to respond quickly in a conversation? Christians must speak slowly, clearly, and truly because we are to be people who control our tongue and not just our tongues, but every part of our lives. If we can be a people, if Christians can be a people who demonstrate great control over what they speak, that will reflect an even greater control over our thoughts, over our heart's desires, and over our actions in other areas of our lives as well. Faith speaks knowing that God judges our word. Faith speaks with control over what we say. And finally, James teaches us that faith speaks words of blessing and life. Those who are walking with Jesus by faith in him speak words of blessing and life to others. This he outlines for us in the final seven or so verses of this passage where he describes, where James describes for us the absolute evil of the tongue of man. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and itself set on fire by hell. 
Is there any more clear way to speak about how just evil our mouths are, how evil our speech can be? Just as a small spark can set ablaze an entire forest, so also can the tongue of man wreak havoc on lives around him. The tongue, James says, is just such a fire. It is capable of that kind of destruction. And at that, it's a whole world of unrighteousness. It is unparalleled in its capacity for opening new doors to unrighteousness in our lives. Think about the things that escape our lips and just how wicked they are. The tongue is truly unlike any other organ in the human body. For with it, we are able to reveal the most hidden thoughts of our hearts, desires uh, uh, of our souls with impeccable clarity. James says the tongue stains the whole body with sin because of its ability to reveal those sinful thoughts and desires with clarity. Our fiery tongue set ablaze our whole lives with sin. Worse still, our tongue itself, as James says, is set on fire by hell. That word hell is literally a reference to uh, uh, Gehenna, the burning trash heap that was outside the city of Jerusalem that smoldered all around the clock. Being set on fire by hell is not necessarily James's way of saying that the tongue is an agent of Satan, though perhaps that's not, not what he's saying either. Nothing else is like our speech in its difficulty to tame and to control. Or wildfires raging in California again. And we'll see in the news firefighters working hard to tame those things, to quell those fires, to save homes and towns and power lines and so forth. Our tongues are much the same way. James turns in verses 7 and 8 to compare our tongues to other things that have been tamed. Verses 7 and 8 tells us that mankind has tamed and is taming every kind of animal on the earth. One envisions here cobras and orcas, ostriches and camels alike being virtually domesticated by humanity. Go to a circus, go to the zoo, go uh, to a, 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 petting, a petting zoo, a, a farm where you can touch goats, right? And see how we have uh, uh, been able to domesticate and to tame every kind of animal. Yet for all our ability to tame lions so that we can stick our heads in their mouths without them being crushed, we can't seem to attain the same measure of control over this tiny little piece of muscle in our mouths. Our tongues spit poison, James says, that rivals the deadliest viper. Beware. Verses 9 and 10 bring to bear the reason for the tongue's great evil. The tongue can be said to be a, 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 an unrighteous member among our body, uh, setting on fire the whole body for unrighteousness because it is a tool that can be used simultaneously for blessing of God and worship of God and at the same time cursing of our neighbor. In his letter, James has turned time and again to the importance of believers caring for their neighbor and for their brother and their sister in Christ particularly as those who have been made in the image of God. That is the reason we love our neighbor, because every man, woman, and child, irrespective of their ethnicity, gender, nationality, uh, social status, bears the image of God who created us. To this point, that argument that everyone has been made in the image of God, and so that is why we are to love others, that argument has been largely implied. James hasn't said it explicitly. But here in this passage, he does say it explicitly. 
He says in verse 9, with it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. To curse not only what God has declared very good in Genesis one thirty one, humankind as the pinnacle of his creation. To curse not only what God has declared very good, but to curse the very living bearers of God's own image, while at the same time, blessing God who created them is incomprehensibly sinful. You cannot imagine a more, a, a more heinous thing to do than to one moment in Sunday morning worship, bless and praise God for who he is as creator. And then on your way to Applebee's, start, ta- start talking about how, oh, what's his name at the church took your seat again and wouldn't let you get past him in the bathroom quick enough. And what a jerk he is. James clearly declares, brothers, these things ought not to be so. This is ridiculous. This is incomprehensible. As Christians, we, we could praise God and then curse our neighbor, our brother or sister in the Lord, almost within the same breath. How is this the case? Something else, something must change. And yet, to our own judgment, these things are so. I want to ask you to raise your hands, but think about how often you have one moment maybe on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening, Bible study or worship service, giving your heart and mind to praising God with words of praise on your lips as you sing uh, songs of his glory and of the gospel. And then literally in the car on the way home, start talking about how so-and-so or what's her face got in your grill and upset you so much and what a jerk they were. It happens. I'm guilty of it. Maybe I'm, I'm assuming I'm the worst among us in here, Right? But I'm assuming someone else has done this too. We should be convicted by what James says here. These things ought not to be so. Three more analogies will suffice for James to illustrate the inconsistency and the offense of evil speech coming out of the mouth of a Christian. He gives the analogy of a spring giving forth both fresh and salt water or bitter water. Mountain springs are not capable of producing both drinkable and undrinkable water. Yet our tongue, created by God, is used sinfully in contradictory ways all the time. James says, fig trees cannot bear olives and grapevines cannot produce figs. This agricultural analogy would fit well with the agrarian members of James' audience. A lot of them knew what it was to, uh, to harvest figs or olives or grapes. Particular plants are bound by their genes to produce only the fruit that they are genetically bound to produce. Fig trees cannot spontaneously produce olives, nor can grapevines produce figs. Yet again, the atrocious wonder of our tongue is that it can both bless and curse in the same breath. James says, neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. This analogy provides a a, a contrast to the first about a, a mountain spring that produces fresh water and not salt water. So also a salt pond cannot produce fresh water. Just as fresh mountain springs can't bring forth undrinkable water, so also these salt ponds that are left behind by retreating seas or whatever, they are incapable of producing fresh water that people can drink. And again, one marvels with disgust at how man can speak words of grace and charity in one breath and malicious curses in the next. Scripture says a lot about the power of our speech. 
I would encourage you maybe later this afternoon, we don't have time to look at all of them, but if you have a concordance in the back of your Bible, uh, an index of scripture passages based on key words or concepts, just go and look for speech or the tongue and see how many places in Proverbs alone, these words of wisdom in the Old Testament, the, the writer of Proverbs speaks to the impact and the power of speech and what it can do. James has done much to tell us about how evil the tongue is. But let us listen to how God intends for us to use our tongue for blessing and for life to others. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 16, 23 and 24 says this, The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to to the body. How much does that contrast with a picture of, of, of poison, uh, more, more poisonous than that of vipers that James speaks about in terms of our speech? Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4.26. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul saying, measure your words, think about them carefully. When you speak, let your words be words of blessing and life, grace to those who hear them. And again, Paul says to the church at Colossae in Colossians 4, verse, uh, verses 5 and 6, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. James gives us much warning about the danger of our speech how wickedly sinful it can be. But time and time and time again throughout all scripture, we get an encouragement in the other way, right? Not just a conviction about the sinfulness of our speech, but the encouragement to be those who speak words of blessing and life to others. Understand this this morning, because God has gifted us with the ability to speak, to communicate the things that are in our hearts and in our minds with absolute clarity. Christians then, Christians must speak life and blessing. Our words must be gracious. Our words must be full of life for others because God has spoken life and blessing to us in Christ. You see, having good speech, having control of your tongue is not just about proving that you're worthy of God's grace. It's not just about proving to the world that you're a better person because you know Jesus. It's about extending the grace and the blessing that you have received, that we have received from God himself through faith in Christ into the lives of others. We speak grace and life because God speaks grace and life. Listen to the first four verses of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. So the author of Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God one time spoke through prophets. He now speaks through his son. And what is the word that God constantly speaks to us, whether through prophets or now perfectly through Jesus, his son? Turn from sin and be saved. Place your faith and trust in me. This is how God speaks to our sinfulness. 
Not with harsh words of condemnation, though certainly our sin deserves that. But rather, God speaks words of grace and life to us in the gospel. And God does more than just speak, doesn't he? He acts. He enters into in an intimate way. He enters into the world that we have broken by our very sin. The sinless son of God is born as a man named Jesus. The gospel writer John calls him the word in the beginning of his gospel. Because Jesus is the clearest and most perfect revelation of God to humanity. And what does Jesus say to our sinfulness? He highlights how deadly it is. Constantly, regularly. He points to our need to be born again. To have a new kind of life given to us through turning from our sin, leaving everything else aside and following him. And then he says this to us. Here is life. Listen, this is John chapter three, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, this is life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When God speaks, he speaks words of grace and life. And he does more than speak. He acts by taking on flesh in his son, Jesus Christ, to point us clearly to how we must be saved. Dear friend, have you come to know this Jesus who speaks life and grace and blessing to sinners? If so, then praise God. Go and let your speech show it. May your speech be measured, careful, true, and full of grace and blessing and life to others. This morning, are you frustrated and broken by the fact that you cannot control your speech, much less your own life and desires? You're living as one who who has not only an absence of a filter from brain to mouth, but an absence of filter in every area of your life. Listen, there is hope. There is healing and there is transformative power in Jesus Christ, the son of God, who died for your sins and rose again from the dead. Dear friend, hear his invitation today. Believe in the only son of God who died and rose again for the sins of your speech and for every other one of your sins in life as well. Place your trust in the incarnate word of God who reveals by his teaching and especially by his resurrection from the dead that there is new life and hope for victory over sin in your life. If you struggle to speak in a way that is true and clear and gracious, Because you've not known the true, clear, and gracious God. Come to know him today by faith in Jesus. And let him, by his power, work uh, work controlled speech and a faith that speaks blessing and life to others in you. Let's pray and ask God to do this.